Good evening. My name is Vince, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Vince. I'm uh, glad to be here tonight. I, uh, I talked to Doc on the phone uh, a couple times when he first when he called me, and invited me to come here, and uh, a few times since about various matters uh, concerning my getting here, my arrival, my participation here, and he impressed me as a rather soft-spoken, straight <laughs> Texas doctor. And I have to tell you, I'm shocked. <laughs> I am simply appalled. The kind of thing I've, you know, my my opinion of uh, Texas AA has always been that you guys are straight. You really are straight. I can see I will leave Lake Brownwood with an entirely different impression. <laughs> it's not entirely true. But I'm glad to be here and I'm glad to be sober. And I think what's the special about being here this weekend is... Uh, I guess, I was talking to Ted earlier, and I, I guess when you have the opportunity to do some of this talking, when you go out of town and you make talks, you, uh, it, it's not, it's, it's not, I guess when you're new, it seems as though it's glamorous, doesn't it? Until you've been about four places, and uh, it gets to be a lot of weekends away from home, and uh, a lot of hotel rooms, and a lot of bad books, and uh, long waits in airports, and it's not always like that, but, but it often is. But what's so different about this is I feel tonight as though I am in a room full of old friends. And because I am, I know so many people here for not living in Texas. There are, some, there are people here that I know and have been with and have been in my life and whom I love very much. And so it's really a celebration for me, a celebration of sobriety for me to be here tonight. And I want you to know that. This is not uh, a, a, an AA trip that's... I'm in AA and I got to do what I'm asked. You know, it's not. It is not like that. And uh, I, I'm glad to be here, and, and it's a privilege to be here. And I, and I want you to know that. I. Uh, I had a. Uh, I got here. Uh, I don't know what you'll hear tonight. I took the red eye out of LA at 107 last night, and I got here at 5:50 this morning. And uh, my good friend Albert and Sally picked me up, and I got a nap over at their house. But it's not. I don't do well on lack of sleep, and. Uh, so it may not be very coherent, it may not be very good, but it, what you'll get from me is the best I have. And uh, whatever that is, it is, and you will know, please know, that I love you and I'm glad to be here. Uh, we have some new people here. Uh, I know we do. We have uh, people here in their first, their early days of sobriety. Uh, there is everywhere, nay, we didn't ask for them specifically, but I know that you're here. Did we, Alan? As we agreed, we'd do. But you're here. Let me ask, just to, who here is in their first 60 days of sobriety? Raise your hand. All right. Good for you. I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want you to know that you are in the right place tonight. As a matter of fact, you don't have anywhere else to go. <laughs> this is the only place you can be in tonight. This is it. Uh, this is the only game in town. The party's over now when you get here. This is the end of the line. Uh, we want you here. This is where you end up. This is it. This is the bottom. This is you know, where there is nowhere else to go. And, and we, we, what you should know is that we want you here, which is unusual for you right now. Uh, <laughs> People are not telling you that very much, but here you'll, and we mean it. We want you here and you belong here. You're part of us, as of tonight. We don't care where you've been or what you've done. We only care that you're here and we want you to stay. 
we, uh, we may not know you individually. I've never met you. Uh, but I know some things about you, if you're new. Uh, I know that for the last year or so, you've made a series of very bad decisions. For sure. I know that uh, down deep in your heart, you really know that you don't belong here. That your case is different. And that you are not really like us. I also know that the chances are good that you are engaged in a great debate that we get into with ourselves here when we're new. And that debate is, am I really alcoholic? I can help you with that. The answer is yes. We don't get accidents here. Not really. Mistakes don't show up here. I can tell you this. The social drinkers in Dallas are not hanging out in Lake Brownwood tonight. <laughs> not where they are. The people who are here tonight belong here. And so I hope that you stay. I know that if you, uh, you come to these meetings and if you do what we do, you can't miss. It's 100% cinch. You make it here. Everybody makes it that comes to these meetings and who are willing to do what we do. You have to do the, both of those ingredients are necessary, however. You can't just have one. You've got to do both of them. You have to have both ingredients. If you have them, you make it. If you don't have them, you don't make it. You don't survive here. You don't make it at all. So it's really a cut and dried thing. And the other thing here, I've got good news for you, you never half make it here. Can't do that. You either make it or you don't make it. And if you're willing to do what is required to make it, you're home free. And uh, you should know that right tonight. It's, we owe you that. Sometimes we don't like to tell you that right away. We like to romance you if you're new. We like to just kind of bring you along slowly. We don't like to tell you what you have to do here. I, I think that's wrong. I think that uh, one of the things that we do even those of us who've been around here a while, we try to, we spend an inordinate amount of time trying to convince you that you're really alcoholic. And I think that's a waste of time. I think you really already know that. So, uh, I guess it's best if you just pull up a chair and be a part of the action and jump in the middle of it. I, uh, let me start, I'm going to tell you about my first AA meeting. And it was a long time ago. It was uh, in November of 1965. And it was in Long Beach, California, on a Friday night in November of 1965. And it was in the basement of a Presbyterian church. And it was in a section of Long Beach, California called the Los Altos section, which is a nice upper middle class bedroom community with a lot of nice upper middle class tract houses, all owned by dentists and insurance salesmen, who when they get a drinking problem, go to the Presbyterian church on Friday night. And all of them are very tightly wrapped packages. You know what I mean? They all are, they look good, and they sound good. And nobody looks like an alcoholic in the Presbyterian Church on Friday night in Long Beach. They, uh, they look like you do tonight. Nobody looks like an alcoholic here. Everybody looks normal and ordinary, and tightly wrapped and together and normal. And that's the way they looked on that night in uh, November of 1965. If you were to look around that room and if you were to look for an alcoholic that you could 
perceive visually. Well, you'd have found one. You'd have found me. You could have picked me out. I, I had on a torn T-shirt and a ripped pair of jeans. I had not shaved in a bathe in well over a week. I just spent the previous five days in the Long Beach City Jail due to a series of unfortunate circumstances that were not my fault. I had been victimized by the fascist police department in Long Beach on a regular basis, and this was just the latest in a long line of miscarriages of justice. And I ended up in the basement of that Presbyterian church, and I like to remember why I ended up there. I had no job, no car, no money, and no place to live. And the reason I went to the basement of the Presbyterian Church in Los Altos in Long Beach was I just didn't have a better idea. I was not in search of peace of mind, quiet heart, or serenity. I was only looking for a place where I could sit down and not be arrested. That's it. It was what I was willing to settle for, and that's why I went to the basement of that church. And I did what most new people do in AA. I sat in the back of the room where most new people sit. When we're new, we have an aversion to getting up too close here in the front, and I understand it. Uh, it implies commitment. Somebody might think you really want to be here. And, or if you don't have this, you might catch it. And I sat in the back of the room. I sat near the wall in the back of the basement of this Presbyterian church. And I should tell you from the outset that I'm Irish and I'm Catholic and I'm from New Jersey. And I have trouble with Texans, is what I do. A lot of trouble with Texans. And I sat next to this guy who was about six foot five, and he had on cowboy boots and a 10-gallon hat in his lap, and his name was Tex. And Tex was not sober very long himself, but he was uh, at the evangelical stage of sobriety. Yeah. About three months sober. And Tex wanted to hep somebody. And he told me, he said, boy, I'm going to hep you. And I remember thinking, why don't you go uh, hep somebody else, Tex? Why don't you just give it a pass? I don't want your hep. And the first thing he did was he repeated to me in rapid succession all of the AA cliches one after another. And they are dreary. And I listened to them, and I thought what you thought when you were new. Easy does what? Uh, until he got to the last one, and he put his arm around my shoulder, and he said, uh, well, so he sounded something like Vinoy. He said, uh, I keep it simple. And I thought, I'll bet you do, Ted. <laughs> that was the first thing Tex said made any sense to me whatsoever, I'll tell you. I was willing to go for that. Tex put a handful of pamphlets in my lap. And if you're new here, we have a pamphlet for everybody here. We don't care who you are, what you've done. We cover your case. There's a pamphlet back there that will cover you. And on top of the pamphlets was a card with the 20 questions on it, which is, if you're new, we like to give you a test here. Uh, we insist that you take the test, as a matter of fact. And the, and that the test is, a, is 20 questions that were devised by the, the medical school at Johns Hopkins who have decided in their infinite wisdom they can determine how alcoholic you are by the way you take this test. And that may or may not be true. I just can't think of anything more utterly superfluous. But take the, you know why you ought to take the test? It pleases old-timers. Yeah, it really does. The guy, that, the old-timer that gives you the test will be pleased if you take it. And that is very good politics around here. You know, it really is. That's a good reason to take the test. And uh, 
So I took the test for text, and the questions are ridiculous. They're redundant by the time if you're in my shape, by the time you get here. Is alcohol, is alcohol causing you problems at work? <laughs> Not really. Is alcohol causing you problems in your marriage? Not since the last one divorced me. <laughs> I answered it to be, the way that you answer criteria for, become, for not being an alcoholic, if you don't want to be an alcoholic, you must answer no to these questions. Because the more yes answers you have as you go down the list, the more alcoholic you get, you become as you go down the list. If you answer one question yes, you may be an alcoholic. If you answer two yes, no, no, if you answer one yes, you may have a problem with alcohol. If you answer two yes, you do have a problem with alcohol. If you answer three yes, you're an alcoholic. I answered uh, 19 yes. I answered no to the question, do you seek lower companions? I couldn't find any. And the meeting began. And it began like we began here tonight. They read that portion of chapter 5 in our book that constitutes our recovery program. They read the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't know about you, but I didn't hear anything new. It was all pretty old hat to me. There's nothing new there in that set of principles or philosophy to me. I am the end product of eight years of Dominican nuns and four years of Jesuit priests. And that's pretty superficial stuff. I know all about searching and fearless moral inventory. We called it by a different name. We call that examination of conscience where I'm from. You talk about admitting to God and to another human being the exact nature of your wrongs. I know all about that. I did that every Saturday afternoon from the time I was seven to about the time I was 16 or so. It's okay. The only problem is it doesn't change my life. It certainly has nothing to do with the way that I drink alcohol. So I guess at least subconsciously I dismissed those 12 steps that night. I didn't consciously say, gee, they aren't going to work, I'm not going to take them. But I think subconsciously somewhere I dismissed them. And the meeting began and they had several people participate. And they were all nice people. But they said innocuous things. They were all dentists or insurance salesmen. And they were all married to pretty blonde Al-Anon women who sat in the front row and did needlepoint during the AA meeting. You know what I mean? And they were nice people, but tightly wrapped. But I, they were, you know, we were worlds apart. I didn't fit, I didn't belong, and I, I, I shouldn't have been there. And one guy in particular got up and said six months prior to that evening while he got drunk, he blew the mortgage payment on his house. And then he found you splendid people in this wonderful program. And I turned to Tex. And I said, where do you send the tough cases, Tex? Because I've got something more wrong with me than that. He said, shut up, for something equally as appropriate. And if I had any illusions as to whether I belong there or not, they were concured at the, at the end of that meeting. We had, uh, uh, there were then a series of birthday parties for, you know, ridiculous. Uh, birthday, when you're new, birthday parties in AA, cakes with candles on them. I mean, they really are embarrassing. It's smacks of Camarillo or some mental institution. It just is really, you know, it's some cheap psychotherapy. Uh, you know, I mean... Middle-aged people get up here and it's, these other fools put candles on kids, sing happy birthday to them. They went a year without taking a drink. I mean, my God. And there were a series of these imbecilic birthday parties. Uh, and one in particular for a gal who was about 110 and 
sober forever, had a bonfire on top of this cake and came down this aisle. And uh, she huffed and she puffed and she finally got the candles out. I really thought the emphysema would get her first, but she got them out. She got up here and she said her name was Phoebe and she was an alcoholic. And then she said something about, did I want what she had? And I want to tell you, it is true my standards were not high that night. It's true, but oh, you, you would have to take a very long look at Phoebe and you would pass. That's what I did. But I suppose if you're new, I guess what I'd like to tell you, I got to loosen this up. What I would like to tell you is that, oh, you're starting already. The doctor started something here, didn't you? She said, take it off. That's what she said. What's going on here, doctor? Did you? Well, I guess what's significant about my life, if you're new, and I, and I guess I ought to tell from that meeting, for the following three and one half years, I drank no alcohol. I used no mind-affecting chemical whatsoever. And during that period of time, I participated in Alcoholics Anonymous in virtually every way that you can participate in AA. I did everything there was to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had every kind of an AA commitment you can have. I folded up chairs, I made coffee, I cleaned coffee cups, I joined committees, I did everything there was to do in AA, except one thing. I did not take these steps. And as a result, my alcoholism got worse. And it got worse while I stayed sober and was active in AA. And if you're new, you should understand that recovery from alcoholism and busy work and Alcoholics Anonymous have nothing in common. They are not related. Recovery from alcoholism is produced by taking these 12 steps. You must take them if you're new. You should know that tonight. They are not suggested. They are required. They are demanded. You take them, you get better. You don't take them, you get worse. Regardless of what anybody is telling you, if you are around a group of people who are giving you a whole lot of gas about all you have to do is come here with the body and the mind will follow, get the hell away from them. Because that's not true. There is much more you have to do here. You have to take those steps. I did not take them. My alcoholism got worse. And I knew it was getting worse. And there are people here tonight in that boat, and you know yours is getting worse. Because you sit in meeting after meeting, and you're involved in AA activity after AA activity, and you watch other people getting better. Because when people recover here, it is not a secret. It is crystal clear. It is visually perceptible. You can see it. They wear it. They have something going on up here. You can see it in their eyes. And they have a sense of purpose about their lives. And they're going somewhere, and it's clear they're going somewhere. And if you're like me, it is clear you're going nowhere. Because their conversation and the way that they live is alien to people like me. They talk about developing a relationship with a higher power. They talk about writing an inventory and making amends. And it just makes me crazy because I don't identify with it and it doesn't work for me and I somehow can't get involved with that. 
and I don't know why, except I know I sit in meeting after meeting and I get resentful and I get consumed with resentment and I, and I just don't do well. And I think, where is it they have the meetings where they give the real answer? <laughs> do they have secret meetings somewhere where they tell how you really get better because this cannot be it? And that's the way that I existed in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, some good things happened in my life that made it look on the outside as though I were getting better. And sometimes that's confusing here, especially if you're young. I was 24 years old. And if you're young, we can, even those of us who've been around here a long time, we can almost, we can destroy you here. We pronounce you recovered because things happen to your life that make you look good. And we get so, in our enthusiasm for you, we, we say, God, isn't he doing great? Look at Vince. I mean, I got a great job uh, because I have a good education. I have, you know what I do in life well? I go to school well. I really do. I just am just remarkable in school. If life were just one university, if you just stayed there, have you ever had that feeling? Yeah, I never would have had a problem. I, but there are always, when people talk about things like practical application, uh, I was always in trouble. That, you, know, you must take it outside and apply it, you know what I mean, that kind of gas, and, you, and you'll do so well because you have such potential. Are you familiar with that? And I have a, an undergraduate degree in biochemistry from an Ivy League university, and I have, uh, and incidentally, what, what, sometimes I forget to put this in, I, I come from this magnificent Irish Catholic family in New Jersey who uh, are... First of all, they have money. I've never wanted, I've, I come from privilege. I've never wanted for anything. I have the very best education, the very best of everything. And on top of all that, they're a great family. And they loved me. And I knew that, okay? It was clear. It was, was never any doubt. I, I never had any doubt whatsoever that I was cared for, I was secure, I was nurtured. I have a classic Roman Catholic education that is was nothing but a magnificent education, the very best you could have. I did not... It is not true. The nuns did not inflict guilt on me. Uh, I did not learn about fear from the Catholic Church. All I got, you know what I got from the Roman Catholic Church? I got a marvelous education, a sense of being loved and cared for, and a sense about what in life was important to be valued and protected. My alcoholism is not the fault of the Roman Catholic Church. You should know that up front. And if you're new, neither is yours. You ought to know that too. And you'll discover it when you get around to writing that searching and fearless moral image. You know what you'll discover when you write that inventory? Uh, it's a terrible thing. It's a painful day. You discover your life is your fault. That's what you do. And that is really not fun. So anyway, you know that. I, uh, in 1966, a new profession opened up when I was new in AA and civilian medicine. I went to the Navy after that education. I got... Uh, Actually, I went in the Navy before it, but I, I, they sent me to one medical school after another. I, did, I do well in school. You know, I get good grades. They sent me to basic hospital corps school, then an independent duty school. Then they sent me and made me an officer. I never had any duty yet, you know. All I did was just send me to these schools. And I, I did great, and I, I have this great medical background and some unique medical training that is really kind of, uh, I guess you can't even get it today, but it's really difficult. And uh, in 1966, a new profession opened up in civilian medicine called the Physician's Assistant or Physician Associate Program, where they took people with my background and training, and we went to work in civilian emergency rooms out here in civilian medicine, and we worked nights primarily. And what we did in these emergency rooms is we, we essentially practiced primary medicine. We saw the patients, we evaluated them, we sutured the lacerations, we 
prescribed medicines. We, uh, we did all the things that an MD does in an emergency room, except we were not MDs, which I suppose will give you pause for thought tonight if you have to go to the emergency room. But you can rest easy. I'm not there. That's a biggie. And uh, I became one of the very first licensed PAs in the state of California. I think I was the third man in. And uh, I went to work in an emergency room in the industrial complex of L.A. in Huntington Park, a big industrial emergency room. We saw a lot of industrial trauma, and I worked nights, and I made a lot of money. It was very, it paid me a lot of money. And, uh, and it was rewarding professionally and even spiritually. I love the practice of medicine, and I did it well. I, I was well-trained in trauma, and I, and I did real well. And it was, uh, I began to look good. My life began to look good. People said, look at Vince, he's got a great job, he's in a new profession, he's one of the very first licensed guys there. And, and I met a beautiful girl, the daughter of a longtime sober AA member, and we fell in love and we got married. And everybody in AA said, what a great young couple they are. I mean, he's got a great job and she's beautiful, aren't they doing well? Not really, we weren't doing well at all. So I began to go into that emergency room at night and I began to get depressed and lonely and inadequate and less than and not up to the task and frightened. And I don't know how to deal with that. I don't have a spiritual program in AA. I just go to AA meetings. But I have a good medical education. So I know how to take care of depression. I use Dexedrine. 15 milligram spantules work best. And before I was through with those, I was taking eight or 10 a day. Now, anyone here that is familiar with amphetamine abuse will understand. Whatever you're doing, you do it quick. Because you, you move right along, boy. I'll tell you, you take that kind of amphetamine a day. You, uh, the only problem is, along about the fifth or sixth day, your hair stands on end, boy, and your eyes dilate out and you get weird, and you show up in the ER to help the sick. Uh, you look strange, is what you look. But there's a remedy for that. And the remedy is a drug called Demerol. And Demerol is a, uh, what can I say about Demerol? Everybody knows, right, Demerol is, I mean, Dem everyone, all AAs today know about Demerol. There was a day when they didn't, but Demerol is uh, a narcotic, because it's one soul out there that, a real, we tend to group drugs together and give them labels. We call a lot of drugs narcotics that are not narcotics, right, Doc? Demerol is a narcotic, though, isn't it? It comes from the same family. It's a synthetic, but, I mean, it comes from the same place as morphine and heroin and Dilaudid. They all come from opium. With, that means they're addictive, period. They are physiologically and psychologically addictive. You do not need it. So I like, you know, we have a lot of pop psychology in AA today. But let me tell you about Demerol. You, you know what? If you inject Demerol, you get addicted. You do not need an addictive personality. You know, you really don't. You don't have to know anything about denial. You know, you really don't. You inject Demerol intravenously and you get addicted. Let me tell you, you right now, you get physiologically and psychologically addicted. You get hooked. And I began to inject Demerol intravenously. And, uh, and I got addicted in a hurry. But there's a problem with that when you... There's another phrase connected to drugs like Demerol. You know what that is called? Controlled substance. Let me tell you what that means. That means that there are human beings whose entire existence is dedicated to finding lost Demerol. That's all they do. Boy. That's why they're on earth. Let me tell you. They are 
petty, small people who, who just spend their lives measuring vials of Demerol to find missing cc's of Demerol. They are people like pharmacists are very big on that. And uh, medical administrators are bigger. But I'll tell you who are the very biggest. The California State Narcotics Board. They care. They care. They care more than anyone you have ever met. They care more than we care in AA, by far, by far. And what they did was, when early one Friday morning, they came into that emergency room, they inspected their narcotic logs, and they caught me, and they placed me under arrest like a criminal, like a drug addict. Can you imagine that? They said, well, you are charged with a felony, appropriating narcotics. And they hauled me out of that emergency room right in my scrub suit. Downtown we went to the Los Angeles County Jail. And the next day I had to appear before a judge in the Superior Court and I was charged with a felony, appropriating narcotics for my own use. Now that was subsequently reduced to a misdemeanor and I did not have to go to jail. But you know what happened to me? They took my medical license, as well they should. And to make a long story short, this beautiful girl and I that I married, who was not so beautiful anymore, they don't stay beautiful long marrying me. I put mileage on them, let me tell you. They, get, they really get rough in a hurry. We ended up spending the summer of 1972 living in an apartment over in Englewood by the airport. Apartment is a very generous term. Hovel would be better. And we spent July and August of 1972, and the way we see how we spent it, I drank one half gallon of vodka every day and she watched. That's what we did in July and August of 1972. Once again, if you drink one half gallon of vodka a day, you do not have to be concerned with diagnoses. You, it is axiomatic. Things happen to you if you drink a half gallon of vodka a day. First of all, if you drink one half gallon of vodka a day, that is all you do. You do nothing else. It is a full-time occupation. It is all-consuming, takes everything you have. And what happens if you drink half gallon of vodka a day, you will vomit bile. Guaranteed. You will, if you're like me, you'll lose 35 pounds in July and August of 1972. You, uh, <clears throat> you're in and out of DTs, if not DTs, you're in and out of blackouts. Was, you never know what's real and what isn't real. You have little seizures. If you look at a clock and it says 6 a.m., it could be 6, or it says 6 o'clock, it could be 6 a.m., or it could be 6 p.m. It might be Tuesday or it might be Saturday. You don't know because you're never awake, you're never asleep, you're never drunk, and you're never sober. You just live in a nightmare if you drink a half gallon of vodka a day, and everybody here knows about that. It's not news to anybody. And that's how we lived in July and August. And in the beginning of September, this girl's family came and they got her and they moved her out of there. And they just left me. You think it's funny? <laughs> My God. This is the bad part. <laughs> She left. You're her sister, aren't you? I mean, <laughs> I knew I didn't like you. They came and they got her. They took everything out of there. When they, take, when they leave me, they take everything. I got to tell you, they take the, the car, the furniture, the drapes. <laughs> no, they just leave the rug and my clothes. And I had some money left. And I managed to get over to that liquor store a couple more times on my own, bring that bottle back. I don't remember the days run together except that it was just dreadful and you all know what I'm talking about. It's just god-awful. It's that kind of drinking where you can't bathe and you can't shave and all you can do is go get the half gallon of vodka. Cheap, 
lucky market vodka, right? That's the kind of vodka you drink. <clears throat> and pretty soon, I was in and out of blackouts all the time, and I came out of a blackout in Newport Beach. And I don't remember going to Newport Beach, except that's where I became cognizant of where I was. And it was uh, mid-September of 1972, and I had on a, uh, the temperature was about 120, and I had on a three-piece wool suit and a white shirt and a tie, and I was sitting on a bench on the Balboa Peninsula, and I, I was, knew I needed a job. I had a suitcase next to me, some clothes in it. I had a, was getting a copy of the Santa Ana Register, and it occurred to me where I was, and I didn't. I was looking through the classified ads of the Orange County newspaper trying to find a job. And, that, and I found one that day, too, as an apprentice embalmer for a mortician in Costa Mesa, California, for, uh, which is, if you're new and you need a job, give that a pass. Don't do that. That's <laughs> god-awful thing. It was where my medical education had taken me. It was the best I could do. And I ended up going to work for this mortician in Costa Mesa, and the job paid, he hired me, $85 a week, and a fringe benefit was an apartment over the casket room outside, which was... Uh, I mean, have you ever walked through the casket room with a hangover in the morning? It will set you free. <laughs> and this guy and I did not get along. I didn't like him, and he didn't like me, and I got drunk and stole his hearse. And uh, <laughs> on September the 20th, 1972, I came out of yet one more blackout, driving the wrong way on Pacific Coast Highway in Newport Beach in a stolen hearse with a young lady next to me who I did not recall meeting who was screaming hysterically. And I remember thinking, you know, you really... If, you were to, if I were to isolate one overriding problem in my life, you want to know what it is? I am, I am predisposed. I am attracted to neurotic women you know, because they overreact and they get crazy and they carry... And I told her that. I said, you know, you, you really overreact, honey, and you, you really do. And it's not... Because I knew that was true because when I got going in the right direction, she continued to scream. And besides that, I said, besides that, I've watched you drink throughout this evening, my dear. And I think perhaps you're an alcoholic. What you ought to do is go to AA. You'd fit in well there. You're not too bright and you're insensitive. And I'd go there myself, but my case is different. I hate AA. It doesn't work for me. I don't fit there. That was September the 20th, 1972. From that date to this, it's been unnecessary for me to drink any alcohol or use any mind-affecting chemical whatsoever. And that's good news. For me, it's great news. But what's more significant is I, and what you should know if, if you're new, it was not my intention on Pacific Coast Highway on September the 20th, 1972, to go back to AA. It was the furthest thing from my mind. But I'll tell you what happened. I brought the guy's hearse back to him, and he was upset. He was in the room over the casket room throwing my clothes out the window, and uh, all of a sudden, it was seven o'clock in the six o'clock in the morning, and all of my clothes were strewn all over this parking lot of this mortuary in Costa Mesa, and the sun was coming up, and I had no job, no car, no money, no place to live. I don't know about you. Every time I get in that kind of shape, I go to AA. But I do. <laughs> and I put everything uh, I had inside of a cardboard box, and I went to the Costa Mesa Alano Club which incidentally was all there was in September of 1972. There were no care units, treatment centers, or detoxes. There was simply the Costa Mesa Alano Club. That was it, and it was not much, but it was all there was. And I sat at the coffee bar, and I had a cup of coffee that, with, the, with the manager of the club, and there was an AA meeting there that noon, and I went to that AA meeting, and I would like to tell you that something 
I had a spiritual awakening, or that not true. It was a noontime Alano Club AA meeting. You know what they're like? They're grim, is what they are, right, Dad? They're grim. There was nothing there inspiring. It was the same seven Texans I'd left, sitting around a coffee table, clutching a coffee cup, telling each other how great it was they put the plug in the jug, right? And there was another AA meeting there that night, and I went to that meeting, and that was just like the earlier meeting. It was awful, god-awful. Uh, the manager of the club let me sleep on the sofa because I didn't have anywhere to go. And the next day, I got in a gin rummy game with some ladies in that club and won 25 bucks. And uh, I rented a room on Federal Avenue in Costa Mesa for $11 a week. And if you'd like to know what that room was like, just use your imagination, you'd be correct. It was an $11 a week room, which they're all the same. They're not, they don't differ much. And it was a, a terrible place to live. And I remember when I moved in there, I thought, the day I moved in there, I thought, my God, this is the worst place. I don't think I can live here. I'm, obviously, I'm going to have to be here for several weeks or a couple of weeks till I can make a move because I'm out of people, you see. There's nobody left that wants to talk to me. And it's going to take me a while to get out of this dirty, filthy place and I can't live here that long. I can't stay here three weeks. Two years later, when I moved out of that room, <laughs> really didn't look that bad. Because, you know, something happened to me. And if you're new, it is the most important thing about my life. The following two years, I spent sober in Orange County, were by far the most significant two years of my life before or since. But I did not know that then. I didn't know it. And if you're new, don't leave here before you know it. <laughs> Your judgment about where you are is flawed. It is not good, let me tell you. Because those were the most significant two years of my life. What happened to me, and I didn't know it until, in retrospect, I, knew, I had taken the first three steps in Alcoholics Anonymous, number one. I didn't know that then. I didn't know it while it was going on. Because if you would have asked me at almost any given time during that two-year period, how is your life? It is awful. <laughs> it is terrible. I ought to commit suicide. It, it couldn't get any worse. But that really wasn't true. It seemed like it was. I got lost a series of jobs that were absolutely unbelievable. I lost a job as a gas station attendant for being incompetent. And when I was trying to be a good gas station attendant, I had, what I did was I locked all the wrong gas caps. People left with a key that did not fit the particular gas cap that was on their car. You know, and they all came back about three days later really upset. Uh, and, the man, and the owner of that gas station and I, I had to... Had to fire me and he was from Texas too incidentally and he was he was a Texan and he told me he said you know he said I gotta let you go he said, but I'll never forget what he said he said it's too bad because you are a trier he said you're trying very hard he says you're a real trier you're trying to do a good job but you're not up to this you are not quite bright enough to do this kind of work that's what he told me and he was right I got lost a job as a drill press operator in a factory in Costa Mesa for a dollar 87 cents an hour Drill, you know what drill press operator is? Drill press operator, you can't get lower than drill press operator. Drill press operator is the bottom. That's it. You can't, and I, and I got this job, and I, you'd go there at 6.15 in the morning, and you walked into this machine shop, and you sat on a stool, and they wheeled up a cart with a whole bunch of copper plates in them, all embossed in the middle, and you took one copper plate, and you put it under the drill, and you pulled a handle, and it pulled a hole right where it was embossed, and, it, and you couldn't do that wrong. I mean, you know, you can't screw that up. And then you put it over here. When you fill that up, they bring you another one. 
At 11.15, they ring a buzzer. You get off the stool, you eat a tuna fish sandwich. At 11.30, they ring the buzzer again. You back on the stool like Pavlov's dog. You pull the handle and you put another hole in the copper plate. You, except I screwed that up. I put the hole in the wrong place. And about 800 of these copper plates in the foreman of that machine shop, who was originally from Dallas, <laughs> said to me, he's your worst. He said, you know, we got to let you go. He says, it's too bad. He says, because you're trying real hard. But you're, you really can't do this. And uh, I said, you, he says, you're just not, you really, some people have talents for some things. You don't have talent for this. You're not, you know, you're just not very bright. And uh, I told him, I said, I went to Cornell. He said, you really ought to go back and take the course and drill press off there. You know, you're you really, you're not up to this. That was on a Thursday, and it was, it was in uh, February of 1973, and I was sober several months in AA. And uh, I remember uh, I felt about as bad that day as I'd ever felt in my life. And I remember going back to this $11 a week room in the rain, and it was just a dreadful, awful day. I was, uh, uh, my license had been taken away to do the only thing I was educated to do. I just lost a job as a drill press operator in a factory. I was at, at the bottom of the barrel, and I remember my mail had caught up with me that day, too, and I... I remember opening a letter from a, a doctor in upstate New York who was inviting me to join the committee for my class reunion at Cornell. And I remember reading the letter. It was the most incongruous... Uh, it was just you, unbelievable. I mean, and I remember thinking, my God, this is the worst. What, what will happen to me? It, was, it sounds funny, I guess. It wasn't funny that day in February of 1973. It seemed to me that I was non-functional. It seemed to me if I didn't find a way to survive, I was a 32-year-old guy on the streets of L.A. that couldn't seem to find a way to support himself. You know what they do with people like a sober, not drunk, sober. They put people away in places like Patton and, uh, for, they, for, for things like that. And I remember going to a meeting that night. It was the big meeting on the Balboa Peninsula, the Ebel Club, which is a nice, Ted knows that meeting well, and it's a, it's a great meeting. It's a big speaker meeting, and it's up, and it's lively, and it's much like this crowd. They're a great crowd. Except I would go there on Thursday night and they would all tie their yachts up outside and they'd come in and the meeting with Jesus, you know. I mean, I'd get depressed. But this night in particular, it was just god awful. And I, it was a rainy night in February and I, I remember going home in the rain after the meeting and I was more depressed after the meeting than I was before. It was just, I got back to this dreadful, horrible $11 a week room and my life was just running through my sleeve at 32. And I was so desperate that night. And so consumed with despair that in abject frustration, I did something so stupid I can't believe it. It was the most ridiculous thing I have ever done. But I found myself on my knees beside the bed in that $11 a week room. And I said a prayer, a very simple, unsophisticated prayer. God, please help me because I'm afraid and I'm alone and I can't make it anymore. I believe my recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous began that night, and I began to get better. And if you're new here tonight, and you'd like to know how to start an AA, that's the best way that I know of. And the beauty of all that is, is you don't have to believe in that prayer, or that God that you're praying to. You don't have to have any confidence that it will work. No faith in anything. There is no faith required. You are just asked to take the action. As it turns out, that's the secret of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're new, I just gave it to you. You just take the action. You don't have to believe in it. You just have to be willing to do it. And if you are, you're home free. Now, I said that prayer that night, but I didn't get the help I thought I needed. 
because I knew the kind of help I needed, and I didn't get it. But what I did get over a period of time, as weeks went by, I stayed alive doing odd jobs. I went to work for a carpet layer, and a, who was also from Texas, incidentally, a one-man operation. He bought and sold card, uh, tiles and carpeting, and he installed it, and he hired me as his gopher. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pay you $10 a day and provide your meals. And it sounded like the presidency of General Motors to me, boy, I'll tell you. And I went to work for Clarence, the carpet layer in Costa Mesa, and I worked for him for the following uh, eight or ten months. And uh, I was his gopher, and he paid me $10 a day. And pretty soon, my second birthday had come and gone. I was two years sober in AA, and I worked for a carpet layer for ten bucks a day in meals. It occurred to me I might need a sponsor. <laughs> I'm not very quick. But I had known who this sponsor had to be. I had known it for quite a while. I had to ask this guy to be my sponsor, and I didn't want to do it because I didn't like it. He was arrogant, and he was pompous, and he was self-serving, and he was, you know, he was crazy. I mean, he was 16 years sober, and when you heard this, he was a big shot guest speaker. And hey, when this guy got done talking, you knew he was nuts still. But let me tell you about him. He had an apparent, amazing facility for helping losers and Alcoholics Anonymous because We'd watch guys in Orange County. They'd go get this guy for a sponsor, and they'd uh, join his fascist AA group on the west side of L.A. And they would do some things that seemingly had nothing to do or any relationship at all to AA as I understood it, but they'd get better. Something happened to them. I don't know what it was, but it was the strangest thing. One guy in particular, I'll never forget him, is Manchester Red the Biker, okay? You got to... Red was a study. He was... He had all his teeth kicked in and a filthy rat and red beard and... And, and he wore tank tops, and he and he was sitting in the meetings in Orange County, had a bottle of Canadian Club in his pocket. He'd tell everybody he wanted to kill them, you know. Jesus, you walked in the meeting and you saw Red, you thought, oh, Christ, I wish I went to Santa Ana tonight. You know, he was he was really, Red dropped out of sight. And about six months later, I was in a meeting in Newport Beach, and someone said, hey, there's Red. And I looked in the back of the room. It was him, all right. It was hard to recognize. He was sitting there as... Uh, like a gentleman in the back of the room. His beard was shaved, his dental work was done, his hair was cut, he had on a blue blazer, gray slacks, and penny loafers, and he was sitting in the rear of the room like a gentleman. And they called on him to share. And he came up to the podium and he said six months prior to that evening when he had made his first child support payment in ten years. And not only that, next month he was going to vote in the presidential election. <laughs> For the Republican, too, I'll tell you. <laughs> And so he pushed me over the edge, and I, I called this guy up, and uh, I asked him if he would help me. And he said, why don't you come up and have lunch with me? He ran this mission on Skid Row in L.A., and I drove this old beat-up car I had up there to have lunch with him, and I, I went in and I met him, and I told him my story, and I said, I need some help. And I'll never forget what he said to me. It was probably the most significant thing any AA has ever said to me before or since, and if you're new, I'd like to share it with you, because it's important. What he said to me was... I will be willing to help you if you can accept the simple proposition that your very best judgment about your life has brought you here and that it's terrible and that my judgment about your life, not about my life, but about your life is infinitely better than yours. And if you can accept that proposition, I'll help you. I am most grateful tonight to be able to tell you that I was desperate enough that day to make this unholy pact with the devil. <laughs> because I did. I agreed to do what this guy said, asked me to do. And he said, the first thing I want you to do is to move into this mission and live here. I said, wait a minute. 
you don't understand. I'm looking for upward mobility. <laughs> I live in Newport Beach. Why the hell do I want to live in a mission on Skid Row? And he said, because you don't really have a better idea, do you? He had me there. <laughs> so I moved into that mission. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to come down to my office every day. And I want you to put on that suit you have. And that tie and that shirt. I want you to, I'm going to give you an allowance. I'm going to give you eight bucks a day, kid. And I want you to go outside and you see that 83 bus that runs up Wilshire Boulevard? I want you to get on that bus and ride up Wilshire Boulevard. I want you to get a series of transfers along the way. Get off that bus at every hospital and medical practice that you pass. And I want you to tell them your story. I want you to go in there, talk to the administrator, and tell them you're two years sober at AA. You don't use drugs, you don't drink, you need help getting your medical license back, and you need a job. I said, that's the most preposterous thing I have ever heard. That is, you know what? They say you're a big guru in AA, but I'm going to tell you something, four eyes, before I had glasses. You, you don't know anything about the medicine, because it's not going to happen. And he said, do you have a better idea? I said, I'll take the $8. <laughs> and I moved into the mission. And I lived in the midnight mission on Skid Row in Los Angeles for eight months. And I rode the bus up Wilshire Boulevard every day. And at the end of the day, I'd end up in the west side of town. And I'd go to a Pacific group meeting. And I'd ride the bus back down to the mission where I lived. And that was his instructions, too. He said, when the meeting's over at night, get the bus back down to the mission. Don't let somebody give you a ride. They're working. They have to get up. You're a loser. You live in the mission. Take the bus. <laughs> kind man. Kind man. <laughs> but he made a profound impression on me because it brought home the fact that he was right. And I would ride that bus up Bullshit Boulevard, and I did it every day, and eight months went by, and it was just awful, and nothing was ever going to happen, and I knew it. I walked out of the midnight mission on one Friday morning in May of 1975. I was two years and eight months sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I lived in a mission on Skid Row. I had no job, no car, no money, and no hope. And I knew my life would, I just couldn't take it another day. And the first thing I did, I got on that bus one more day because I didn't have a better idea. I took his crummy eight bucks, and I got on the bus, and the first thing I did was I sat down a big wad of chewing gum, you know, all over the back of my pants. And it was just a terrible mess. And I got off the bus at Western and Wilshire, and I went into a 76 station, the men's room, to clean the chewing gum off the back of my pants. And I did it with wet paper towels. Have you ever done that with a wool suit? <laughs> went all down the legs. On the back of the legs, and it was just a, I just, I was such a loser. I mean, I was the most grotesque character I had ever seen in AA. I didn't know anybody in AA was doing as bad as I was. And I put my pants back on. I thought, I got eight bucks or seven bucks. Maybe I can, if I can get a bite to eat and go to a movie, I can stay sober. But that's all I have today. Otherwise, I'm drunk. And I rode to the end of the line in Santa Monica, and I went into a cafeteria. And I went through the line. I got a tray of food. And I sat it down outside to get a newspaper. And the bus boy came. I took my lunch. <laughs> took my tray. And I got over to, I just took the rest of the money. I got over to Westwood Village. And uh, I thought I'd go to the movie. And I went to the Bruin Theater in the village. And I stood in line to buy a ticket to the movie. And uh, I was standing in that line. I heard a guy call my name. And I turned around. It was the administrator of the medical center, which I had been arrested in for stealing narcotics. And he said, where, my God, where have you been? We thought you were dead or in an institution. And I said, no, I'm, I'm in AA. I've been sober for two years, and I don't use drugs in it. And he got a look on his face that was his eyes lit up, and he was profoundly impressed. He started to cry, and he put his arms around me. He said, I'm so glad to see you. I can't tell you how glad I am to see you. And you look marvelous. He said, your eyes are clear, and you look just terrific. And uh, he said, uh, how are you? I said, well, I've got this chewing gum all over my rear end. He said, I'm all right. And he said, uh, have you worked? I said, I haven't worked in a long time. 
he said, well, we've just had a urologist who's joined our group practice. He's a member of the Medical Quality Assurance Board in the state of California. Come down tomorrow. We'll introduce you. We'll all have lunch together. Maybe he can write some letters and help you get your license back. And if he can, how would you like a job back in that same emergency room? I went down the next day and I met that urologist and he wrote some letters within 60 days my medical license was restored in the state of California. I went back to work in the very same emergency room in which I was arrested and for stealing narcotics. I worked there for the following two and one half years. And during that period of time, no drugs were missing. But something more significant happened in my life. And if you're new, you should know it. I took these steps, one through twelve, all of them, just as they're written. I wrote that inventory. And I wrote that inventory means if you're new and you're wondering about it and you're wrestling with it, I'm going to give you the bad news. It means write your secrets down. The garbage is what we want to know. It is not a litany of how wonderful you are. That is not what the inventory is about in Alcoholics Anonymous. Write the secrets, the things that are destroying you. Write them down and share them with us and you'll be free. Uh, you'll be free. That's what I did. I read that inventory to this crazy maniacal sponsor by flashlight under the dashboard of his car one night when we making a talk out in the desert. And I, and I discovered how to take the six and the seven step and the twelve and twelve. And I and I, I began to get better. My life flourished. And it would be nice to tell you that from that day to this, why it's all been wonderful and and uh, and I've never made any mistakes. And I, I that's not true because what you should know if you're new, Alcoholics Anonymous is not utopia. It's not some heavenly place you come and get good. You make all mistakes here. I have made every mistake in sobriety you can possibly make. And the good news, I think the evangelism of AA is that you will never get drunk from making a mistake. Never. You may get drunk from trying to defend it, but never from making it. And if you're willing to accept that, you're home free here. I've done everything wrong. And in July, in August of 1976, I met a cute little redhead, and I met her in August, got married in September, divorced in October. <laughs> and the last time I saw her, she was on the way back to her daddy's ranch in El Dorado, Texas. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> but I'll tell you what, I survived that. I didn't drink and I didn't run, and I was willing to get up here and tell you about it. And I survived. And where I am today, you can't get to from. September 1972 it can't happen. I'm in a new business and I make a lot of money and I own a big house and I got a big car and I I have a suite of offices with the with the, my office has got a big picture window right on Wilshire Boulevard as a matter of fact. <laughs> and when days where I don't think I'm getting what I deserve, when I look out that window, I look for the 83 bus coming up Wilshire Boulevard, boy. And I got to tell you, things get better in a hurry. <laughs> I'm married to a gal today who's 12 years sober in AA. Boy, I want to tell you about this woman. This woman is the most remarkable human being that's ever been in my life. She is a uh, because not only do I love her, I like her. I like her. We're friends. We are an entry, we are. We are a team. We do it together. No secrets with Pat and I. We got a great life. Just a great life. And I love her so much, I can't tell you. I wish she was here with me tonight. I'm just crazy about her. And uh, we have a good life. And, 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 and I just it's just so good to be with you. And I wish she was here too. I'm going to close it, but before I do, I, I want you to know if you're new. I think you should know this. AA, why we're here tonight. We are not here tonight because of any psychiatric innovation. Mental health has not produced this. You should know that. Because we have a whole generation of people in AA who think that this is some kind of aftercare. It isn't. It's something, and there's nothing wrong with treatments. I'm not putting that down, but I, 
AA is different. You should know that. It's a, it's a different entity. It's something special. No, it could not be produced by science. The collective wisdom of the entire scientific community since the beginning of time didn't get anywhere near close to this. <laughs> What's happened as a result of a, a stockbroker standing in a hotel lobby in Akron, Ohio in June of 1935 with his life running out of sleeve, with no hope. He'd been sober six months as a result of a spiritual experience he'd had. And he'd been running around trying to get other, share this experience with other people and get them sober. He thought he'd feel better. It, was, it wasn't working at all. And instead of getting drunk that day, he just blew the biggest business deal of his life. He found a church directory, got a minister to lead him to a drunken doctor. I mean, there's nothing scientific about that, let me tell you. It's a gift from God, and I'm, I'm glad we all have it. Thanks for inviting me here. Thank you.